Hey guys, real quick, before we get started, I have a small request. If you've been blessed by our content and you like this show, would you take just a brief moment and leave us a five-star review? This is quite possibly the most effective thing that you can do to ensure that this content gets out to as many people as possible. Thanks. Jesus said, man cannot live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're listening to Daily Truth. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, says that it is impossible, it is impossible for those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, those who have once been enlightened, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, partook in the Holy Spirit, those who have received the word of Christ, for those who have had these kinds of experiences, this kind of participation in the covenant community of the Lord, For those who fall under this category, should they walk away, should they turn their back on Christ, it is impossible to be restored to repentance. And many have been terrified by this text. Many have thought several times, have I apostatized? Have I turned my back upon the Lord? And if so, there's no hope of return. There's no hope of restoration. Many have struggled for years with the assurance of salvation. And sadly, I believe that they have struggled unnecessarily. That they have struggled by a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding of these apostate texts. And in order for us to understand them properly, we need the historical and the theological framework for the audience that the apostle is writing to. And I do believe that the apostle is the apostle Paul. We need to understand this. In a nutshell, all Scripture is for us, but not all Scripture is to us. All Scripture is for us, but not all Scripture is to us. What I mean by that is that everything we find in the Bible has an immediate and specific audience. Now, all Scripture is God-breathed, It's all inspired, and we know it's all for us because the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, all Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, it's infallible, it can never err, it's authoritative, and it's useful. It's useful for training and equipping the man of God that he might be fully equipped for every good work. It's useful for reproof and rebuke, but also comfort and consolation. All of the Scripture is not only authoritative, not only infallible, but it is also sufficient. It's not just the inerrancy of Scripture, but the sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficient for what? For making the Christian complete for all that God has called him to making him complete for every good work. Not just complete to be an officer in the church for an hour and a half a week on Sunday, and not just complete to be a husband or a wife or a father or a mother in the home, but complete for every good work, to do good works in every realm of human society. It makes us complete for politics. It makes us complete for art. It makes us complete for medicine. It makes us complete for every single realm of life. All of Christ for all of life. The whole counsel of God for the whole of human society. All Scripture is not just authoritative. It is sufficient for equipping us for obedience in every single realm. So all Scripture is therefore for us. But again I say, not all Scripture is directly to us. 
For instance, think of John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his arrest. At first, he is praying for his immediate disciples. And we know that because later he explicitly says, I now not only pray for them, but for all those that you would give to me. So we could look at Jesus' high priestly prayer and say the first half is for Peter, James, John, Matthew. And the second half is for us. Now, does that mean we shouldn't even uh, meditate and study the first half? No, that's actually for us too. It's actually for us too, but in another way. In another way. It is not directly to us, but it is for us. And so too, we must remember that the book of Hebrews is for us, but it is to the Christians, the Jewish converts to Christianity that he is writing to 2,000 years ago in his time period, in his context. What were they plagued by? What were they tempted by? What were they struggling with? Well, one of the primary things that they were struggling with was the temptation to return to, to Judaism. The temptation to, to turn back from Christ and his once and for all sufficient sacrifice back to the, the animal sacrifice system of Israel. They were tempted to turn back from the church to the synagogue. They were, they were tempted to turn back from Christian baptism. As Paul says in Galatians, we have one baptism to multiple plural washings, multiple baptisms. There was a concept and principle, a ritual of washings, baptisms within Judaism. But it was again and again and again, just like the sacrifices were again and again and again. It was perpetual. But, but what the apostle is saying is don't turn back to that, but, but stick with Christ. This is permanent. This is sufficient. This is forever. That's why he's been arguing up to this point in this letter about the fact that, that Christ is not in the order of, of Aaron like your priest with Judaism, but rather he is a priest like them, but in a whole nother category in the order of Melchizedek. And one of the things about this mysterious char character, Melchizedek, that we, we know very little about, but one of the things that we're meant to assume is that he was without beginning and without end. Without beginning and without end. Now, if it can be proven that Melchizedek was, for instance, like one of Noah's sons, is a theory that I've heard that I, I'm not opposed to, but even if that is the case, and therefore he literally physically had a beginning and literally physically had an end, that's not the point. Melchizedek is still being used by the author to the Hebrews to say Melchizedek, in the same way that we do not know his origin, whether he has one or not, and we do not know his demise, whether he has one or not, the point is what we know about Melchizedek is that he was a priest even though he was not of the Levitical order. He was before that. And not only was he a priest, but he was a king. King of Salem. King of peace. He was a king and a priest without beginning, without end. So a forever kingship, a forever priesthood, and this is the priestly category that Christ falls into. Not the category that constantly has to be replaced. Not the, the category, the Levitical order, that has to make atonement not only for the sins of the people, but also for the sins of the priest himself. But rather, Jesus is in this other category. He is forever. His sacrifice is forever. His mediating work is forever. 
forever. His intercessory prayers are forever. They are sufficient. Jesus is better. To put it simply, Jesus is better. That's the whole purpose so far of this letter. We saw that Jesus is, is better than Moses. We saw that in Hebrews 1 and 2. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the Levitical order. Jesus is better than this. He's better than that. What the author is saying is that Jesus is the final revelation. Jesus is, he, he is the crescendo to all that God has been doing through the nation state of Israel for the last 1,500 years. It's all been types and shadows pointing towards the climax. It's arrived now to go back to types and shadows rather than remaining with the substance is a fool's errand. Don't go back. And he goes further, just to give you a little spoiler alert, he goes further in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 and says, if you do go back after tasting of the heavenly gift, after being enlightened, enlightenment, I believe, refers to baptism. Heavenly gift, I believe, refers to the Lord's Supper. He is naming, he is naming marks, signs, and seals of a New Testament, New Covenant Christian church. So he's saying, if you have come to Christianity, you've converted from Judaism to Christian faith, because of the gospel, if you are to leave the Christian church and go back to Judaism, all that awaits for you is fire and judgment. He says, it's impossible to repent. If you leave the Christian church and you go back to Judaism, you will die in your sin. You won't, you won't get a second chance. And we look at that and we're like, whoa, but I thought that if we sinned, that there was always room for repentance. And I would say, yes, there is. So then what is he talking about? Is this a particular sin? The sin of apostasy, is, is that just different than other sins? So, so there's one sin that if you commit that sin, then there's no chance to repent? And that particular sin being the sin of going back against Christian faith to Ju Judaism? No, I, I think very practically. The reason why he says only fire and judgment remains for you and that there is no chance of repentance is because he's writing this in 80, 67, 68, 69, knowing that if they leave the Christian church and go back to Jerusalem where the temple is, that it's about to get sacked and destroyed by the Romans. And there will be literal physical fire and they will not have the opportunity to repent. In other words, as we deal with these primary infamous apostate texts, Hebrews 6 and 10, you can deal with them in one of two ways consistently. You can always deal with the Bible inconsistently. There are lots of examples that can show you how to do that. Russell Moore, Beth Moore. There are lots of, so if you want to learn how to deal with the Scripture uh, uh, inconsistently, check out Tim Keller. There's lots of guys that can show you that. But consistently, there's only two ways to deal with Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. You either need to be Arminian and premillennial, or Calvinist and post-millennial. The problem is, if you are reformed in your soteriology, the fifth point being perseverance of the saints, you cannot lose your salvation. If you're reformed in your soteriology and believe that you cannot lose your salvation, but you are, I believe, off in your eschatology, 
and you see all these texts talking about about something that has not yet been fulfilled, rather than the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, speaking about something in the future, then you're going to look at a text like Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, and you're going to say, well, I, I don't believe that people can ever lose their salvation, but, but maybe they can. And then you have to start doing gymnastics and triple aerials and backflips in order to exegetically make an argument for why you can never lose your salvation, and yet there's still a category of those who fall away and it's impossible to be brought to repentance. What I'm saying is this. Calvinism creates an inconsistency with a text like this. Calvinism plus postmillennialism resolves it perfectly. And we'll talk more about that next week. Thanks so much for listening. But real quick, before you go, do us a small favor, take a moment, and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. This is undoubtedly the best way that you can help us get this biblically faithful content to as many people as possible. Thanks so much.